folks, and welcome or welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima, again. And this podcast was brought to you, among others, by Emil Gorgis, a Tokyo real estate agent who specializes in serving international or mixed nationality families looking for the perfect family home. So Emil's an Australian. He's been living here in Japan for the past two decades, eight years of which he's been actively buying, selling, and managing real estate properties in the city on behalf of his own family and a great many happy clients. And he also acts as a mortgage broker on behalf of his clients. So his company has a dedicated loan officer in many of the Japanese mega banks. And if you're a regular listener, you probably already know him from our JREP, the Japan Real Estate Experts panel sessions. So you're probably already aware that the man is an absolute fountain of wisdom on all things related to real estate in Japan. And in particular to family homes, the greater Tokyo metropolitan area and mortgages. And most importantly, he's incredibly generous with his time and advice, which he's more than happy to provide at no cost or commitment to anyone asking. So if you've been thinking about buying your home in Tokyo, but you've been sitting on the fence for a while, or if you just want to have a chat in English with a real expert, drop him a line on emil.gorgis, that's E-M-I-L dot G-O-R-G double E S Emil dot Gorgis at Tokyo Realty dot JP. Hit him up today and start exploring your options. All right, so a special episode today. This is our annual best of compilation, which will include segments from your favorite 10 podcast episodes or YouTube videos of the last 12 or 13 months. Now, the reason this isn't being published at the very start of the year is because annual market data normally takes about a month uh, post end of year to be published, which is when we start preparing our own annual summary articles and podcast episode. So that happens around February. And then to get our experts to come in on the show and be interviewed with their own annual summaries and takes uh, takes another month or so because they're busy for the same reason. So Shai Greenberg, our large commercial deals and market authority, um, Dan Gallucci, our macroeconomics expert and so forth. And then before deciding on which episodes to include in the compilation, I need to give those annual summary episodes a week or three to gain exposure and momentum just to see if they're to be included in the most popular downloads and streams, which to my surprise wasn't the case this year. It's actually the first time since we've started doing these annual uh, favorites compilations that the annual summary episodes have not been included in your favorites list. And what our podcast listeners and YouTube viewers tended to go for instead this year were actually the more micro nuts and bolts down to earth type of conversations. So deals analysis, segments on Akia, Airbnb, basic strategy, market fundamentals, family homes, and so forth. So interesting choices from you folks this year. Let's get right into it. And if you happen to miss any of these episodes that we're featuring segments of, we're going to link to all of them in this episode's show notes as well. So if the topic being discussed holds interest for you and you happen to miss that episode that it's being quoted from, feel free to click on those links for the full segment. So the first in chronological order, and actually your second favorite episode this past year, was our long and detailed Tokyo Deals Analysis episode. Now, this one actually contains some deal analysis spreadsheets and numbers that you can look at while we're chatting. So you might want to hop over to our YouTube channel if you want to see what we're actually seeing as we speak. I'll link to it in this episode show notes. So in this extended conversation, and we're only going to be showcasing a few minutes of it, we look at properties in and around Tokyo, 
that our client is considering purchasing. We highlight the advantages and disadvantages of them from several perspectives, including uh, building profile, location, attractivity to short-term stay guests, which is one of the uses he's considering for them, and a bunch of other interesting criteria. So here's a part of that conversation. Um, this one is in a very good area. Meguro-ku in Tokyo is one of the best areas, and the interior, as you can see, is, is well done. The kitchen is maybe not that outdated, but slightly. It's got a big bath, which is a, a phenomenal bonus in Japanese apartments. It's quite rare. Separate toilet and bath. Uh, no, actually, not sorry, not separate toilet and bath which was a bit strange for me because this property was 1993 and they are supposed to be separate toilets and bath for the ones built after 1990. So yeah. I just I just wrote there to confirm the build year. It might be maybe just on the borderline, but I haven't seen too many that are past 91 that don't have them separate. So I'm just wondering about the build year. The average uh, rent... Sorry, go ahead. It's probably, probably a, just a greedy developer who didn't want to... You know, unless he's told by legislation they have to separate the, the, the uh, toilet and the ofura, they're probably just going to bang it in together, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not a leg legislative matter. They can definitely build them still together if they want to. It's just the tenants these days are just not going for those. Okay. Um, so the only people you would find in these older properties are really, really low-income earners or really elderly folk who are really used to it from day one kind of thing. Um, anyone in the young professional entry-level salaryman kind of bracket would probably very much prefer to have a separate toilet and bath. Yeah. And that's a quite that's quite an expensive renovation. You probably know best from what you're doing. Yeah. Um, I mean, looking at this one, how many buildings are in that, or how many um, apartments are in this property? That's the other thing that the English listing websites don't actually tell us that. Um, the Japanese websites usually clearly state that, but the English websites don't. So I can just make a guess looking at the exterior, um, one, two, three, four, five, maybe six units per floor times four floor, maybe up to 24 units or so. Um, the ground floor, also I can't see because of the cars, whether it has units or it has shops down there. I'm not sure what's the situation. So I'd say probably 10 to 20 apartments. Hmm. This one's on the fourth floor, but it's quite small in size, which leads me to believe there are no any um, particularly wide apartments or penthouses on the top floor. So probably the same sort of structure as the lower ones. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'd say 10 to 20. Balcony is facing south, which is good. Because it's on the fourth floor, um, I'm wondering, the listing doesn't specify if it has an elevator, because if it doesn't, Fourth floor in Japan is what we call third floor in Australia and other countries. So they count the ground floor as number one. Yeah. So whoever's leasing this one has to climb up three flights of stairs. So right there, you probably ruled out most of your elderly tenants. Yeah. Which in Japan is a very large percentage of the population. Um, and also... Single moms, sometimes in these small apartments, you'll get a single mom with a baby or a toddler kind of thing, and they wouldn't be too thrilled climbing out with a, you know, a child in hand plus five bags of shopping. No. Um, so you just, fourth floor does get a bit challenging. Fourth and fifth floor, which is the top that you can get without an elevator by law, um, is a bit more challenging finding tenants for. That's my main concern with this one. Hmm. 
Now, the average rent from what we've seen on the internet seems to be somewhere between 60 to 70,000 yen for this one. So looking at a best case scenario of 70,000 yen, um, you're looking at very, very low returns, right? Yeah. Yeah, so now the interior um, is lovely. I do like the interior. Um, for short-term stay, the area would do fabulously. It's a great area. So I would definitely go into this one if you think that you could lease it out comfortably throughout you know, a large part of the year, in which case you might conceivably go up to 120 or 130. And then it does start to look a bit more attractive. Okay. Um, but that's a maybe, and it's definitely a maybe now when we've got COVID going on. So. Right. So for your next favorite, this one's an interview that was conducted by Pretty Donnelly, our marketing manager. And she sat down with Matt Ketchum, who you probably know well by now. Uh, if you're a regular listener, Matt is a member of JREP, our Japan Real Estate Experts panel. And he specializes in Akia, so abandoned or vacant homes, mainly in the Japanese countryside. He's a huge and outspoken proponent of country living and a fantastic authority on all things related to buying these um, often dilapidated homes, restoring them, and then even revitalizing the communities that they can be found in. So fascinating conversation there. Here are some tidbits from it. Is that there's this cultural narrative that just says, you better be in Tokyo, right? So this is, it, it almost sounds like it's, it's polarized. It's the complete opposite Extremely. of what is what one would want in Tokyo. Extremely, extremely, you know, and I mean, that's not to say that, you know, Tokyo is great. And like, actually, the countryside is super great. Like there are totally issues that, you know, there's, there's cultural issues. There's a geographic, like, for example, I live on top of a mountain. If you've got a bad hip or something like that might not suit you very well. Um, there, there are things to consider, right? But there are also opportunities out there. And it's merely a matter of kind of digging through, um, you know, the data and, you know, kind of the experiences that are available around the country. And it's not the case that, you know, anywhere in rural Japan, it's all the same. No, they're totally different. It's an entire country, like <laughs> cities and neighborhoods and stuff. They all have unique cultures, right? So it's, it's really a matter of just kind of spending the time and having the resources to identify the things that may suit your kind of your personal needs and wants. One thing that's very unique to Japan is the um, the market itself. Very different from Canada, where I am, the U.S., London, where most people buy real estate um, for speculative purposes, you know, hoping to obtain right. capital growth. In Japan properties depreciate. So you're not really looking for capital growth. You're looking more for the rental income. Right. But what I'm wondering is a property generally would depreciate in about 25 years in Japan. I mean, at that point, it would be fully depreciated, yeah. if I'm correct. Yeah. So that would mean then that a person is really paying for land price, if we're talking about these abandoned properties in um, the countryside. They're not paying for the structure, they're paying for right. the land. Is this one of the reasons why these properties would be so inexpensive? And, and how much actually are they? Uh, yeah, that's a huge factor in it. The, I mean, basically your 
buying, yeah, like you said, the land. And in fact, we've, we've heard cra crazy, uh, you know, not firsthand, but kind of anecdotal stories about somebody buying land with a structure on it that they, that they wanted. And because sort of the um, kind of the, the standard practice is just assuming, oh, you're buying the land, you don't want this house, like you're going to demolish it. And so apparently this couple bought some land with a house that they wanted on it. And then they came back the next day and it was totally gone because the contractor just assumed you don't want the house, so we demolished it for you. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, no, what did you do? Whether or not that's true, I wasn't there, can't say, but I think it's kind of a funny story anyway. Um, but yeah, you're you're basically buying the land. You know, not 100%, but probably somewhere between 80 and 100% of the, uh, or I'm sorry, up to 80% of the purchase price is, is attributable to the land value. Um, the cost varies out just incredibly widely. Um, for example, there, so I'm in Kanagawa Prefecture right now, which is kind of west and south of Tokyo. And then on the other side of Tokyo is Chiba Prefecture. You sort of got two, and then there's Tokyo Bay right here. So Kanagawa would be here and Chiba's over here. And on the tip of um, Chiba, uh, this is a little bit ago um, and since has sold, but there was this something I'm kind of a outdoors person and, you know, just have a cabin in the woods and all that sort of stuff um, is kind of my, my, uh, what I'm interested in. And I found a spot just looking personally, $6,000, um, this one room cabin, you know, kind of Thoreau-esque Walden kind of spot on top of a mountain on the end of the Chiba Peninsula, kind of overlooking the ocean. Um, really beautiful. You know, not at all palatial, not, you know, some, you know, extreme awesome. I mean, it's a cabin in woods, right? <laughs> but it can't, I think, you know, the plot was five or 600 square meters. The house or the cabin itself was, I think, 150, 200, something like that. It was going for $6,000, right? We also are currently working with one client on um, looking in the Yamanashi area, which is north of Mount Fuji. Um, which is kind of nearby, uh, and their budget is in between 80, or I'm sorry, 60 and 85 million yen, which is about 600 to 850,000, right, US. So you can get mega cheap ones, like really, really, really cheap ones, and you can also get rather expensive, well, comparatively, um, rather expensive ones. But I mean, the thing is, the spots that we're looking for, this larger budget and this higher budget, those, those are, you know, kind of mini hotels with gargantuan land plots and, you know, multiple stories and hot springs and, I mean, kind of the works and Japanese yeah. gardens and all of this stuff. So, yeah, like 850,000 US is nothing to kind of scoff at. But at the same time, what you get for that amount of money here versus what you get in, you know, California or whatever is considerably oh, for better. for sure. Yeah. So following right up from the topic of abandoned homes, which are often purchased with a plan to turn them into hospitality properties for short-term stay guests, your next favorite from July last year uh, was this recording of a clubhouse conversation with Tracy Northcott, who's another member of our JREP panel. And she joined our Japan real estate room on Clubhouse to talk to us about all things related to running a minpaku or short-term stay lodging business here in Japan. We talked about Airbnb, other advertising and booking platforms, 
licensing, marketing, and much, much more. So here are some of the things that she had to say on the topic, and that's been her expertise for the past decade or so, so really worth listening to. Um, what would you advise them to purchase as far as short-term rentals are considered um, in Tokyo? What would be better? Would it be a condo? Would it be an old house? Would it be a, in the heart of the city, on the suburbs? What are popular properties um, for if and when tourists are present here? Um, if money was no object, um, buy a building <laughs> that has, um, that I would say, three to four uh three to four cot like three to four mansions or three to four um two or three bedroom units so not the one case not the um you know not the the studios um but a building that say nipori for example or something that has or something close to shinjuku something close to shibuya uh something close to when or something that is close to a hub um that has great um, airport access, I would say as well, yeah, I do love the um, the idea of actually me managing a building with three to four or six or ten, um, two to three bedroom apartments um, and have the whole building dedicated. Um, it would, would also have to be in the right zone. So the first thing to do is check the address and check the, um, the regulations. Um, something that can get a hotel license. Um, there are certain parts of the city, and I'm thinking around Ikebukuro is one, where you can get, um, where it's easier to get a hotel license on various zonings. So it, you have to check the address for the zoning, um, whether, whether or not you can do short-term rentals, um, and also whether or not, um, what, what are the regulations. So there are, there are places in Minato-ku. Minato-ku I would advise against because they must be extremely bored down there. I'm not sure. But um, I know people with licenses in Minato-ku and there is someone who comes once a month to check to make sure that the right signage is up and, and just really nitpicky and and um, and they're just bored and looking like, you know, looking for something to do. Um, and uh, it's just tiresome, basically, uh, when, especially in Minatoku, you're only, you're only supposed to be doing it for 90 days of the year anyway, um, and that really doesn't make it profitable. So look for a place where you can get a hotel licence, um, uh, number one, um, uh, either a single-family home or a condo where you have permission from the Kumiai, from the, the Homeowners Association, um, because you need that. Um, the reason I like a big building is that for the fire regulations and short-term rental, you need to have a certificate by a registered um, fire, I can't think of the English, but a, a registered company that will put in things like exit lighting that is connected to the mains um, and there's a few you know there's a few quirky quirky fire regulations they're not that hard you just have to you know maybe budget in or you know around a million yen um, just to have that all done and dusted to get your license and also to get all of the regulations in place um, but if you're only able to run that 90 days of the year it's really not worth you know that squeeze is not worth the juice so um, zoning first um, building type second um, and 
uh, size uh, third. Um, and I like to go with single family homes because because there's no real homeowners association. You haven't got you're not going to bother any neighbours. Um, and uh, and also I think that the larger places you get more return on investment than a single uh, than a single unit. Um, you still have to spend the same amount of time and energy on, on on each booking, but when you've got a booking for two people paying bottom bargain basement rates or you're looking at a group of a family of five um, or an extended family group, two families traveling together, that's when you're really making good uh, ADR, which is like average daily rate, um, and that's really where you're making making all the money. It's the same amount of effort whether there's 10 people or whether there's two. So, and you're going to make much more money uh, at, that, at that high rate. So a long answer to a very short question. <laughs> so I hope that was useful. And I want to give a, a quick um, addition to that um, with, in terms of the building. So a uh, single-family home, so basically a standalone house is what you know, she, uh, she's referring to. Often in Tokyo um, or in Japan, they're two-story and three-story homes. Okay? One of the requirements for a three, to get a hotel license or the Minpaku license for a three-story home is that it is a fireproof home, okay? There's, um, it's called the Taika Kenchikubutsu. Now, the problem is that generally has to be concrete. So if it's a wooden structure that's a three-story home, it's probably unlikely that you can use the third story. They probably don't want to give the whole two-story, uh, the, just the lower two-story, the hotel license, um, and say you're not going to use the top, the top, top floors. But technically, uh, it's hard to get the license, and if they do, they don't want you to use the third floor for uh, as a hotel or for booking if it's not a fire-proof um, house, as Taika Kenshin would say. Now, the thing is, most homes, um, like in Tokyo, that are built within fire regulation are considered Jun Taika, like a, a, a second-grade fire-resistant, not first-grade fire-resistant. Um, so... But if their house is only two stories, then you generally don't need uh, to to meet that requirement. So, in addition, it should be a two-story house, not a three-story house. Um, is, is that correct with your understanding as well, Tracy? Yeah, there is. But there has been an addendum to that law, and that came in, I think, at around 2019, um, where three-story properties, you could get licensed. But you did have to put in, the, on the internal stairs... Um, a door and you could get all three because I've actually got a license on a three-story house in Shinjuku um, it's a 180 day license um, and that's a new build um, and uh, and because it was a new build I was able to make sure that it had all the all the little fire things in there I did have to get exit lighting there was a the 20 uh, you know exit lighting that was attached to the mains um, as a retrofit, but that wasn't that was only uh, you know two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand yen. It wasn't that expensive. Now for this next episode, also from July twenty twenty one, this is another recording of a clubhouse session that we've had in which Emil, our Tokyo family home and mortgage expert, also a member of the JRE panel, and I took questions from the audience. Now this was a very long two hour Q and A session. 
touching really on all aspects of the property market here in Japan. We obviously can only include a short segment of it here in this compilation, but we will again link to the full recording in this episode show notes. Highly recommending, uh, highly recommended listening material for anyone considering purchasing property here in Japan for the first time, whether it's for your own personal use, investment purposes, really useful stuff in here. Here's some of that session. That's a tricky one. Let, often an investment property and your primary residence are two different beasts. Like just the size of the, just the value, the dollar value of it is going to be significantly different. Okay. Um, in, in general. Uh, how much the bank will loan you. So, you know, if you can get, generally a bank for your personal home, a bank will loan you about seven times your gross annual income. So if you earn, say, 7 million yen, the bank will give you 90 million. Uh, sorry, the bank will give you 45, almost 50 million yen. So seven times 7 million yen annual is about 49, say 50 million yen. Let's play with that number. So for your primary residence, you can borrow about 50 million yen without any money down. If you want to buy an investment property, the bank can give you sort of this, uh, will give you a bit less to begin with because interest rates are higher. They'll want a down payment of 20%. So that's another 10 million yen deposit. So all, instead of getting 50 million yen, a 50 million yen property um, with very little money down at 0.7% interest, you're going to get maybe a 40 million yen property with 10 million yen down payment, right? So it's completely. It's, it's, it's quite different, um, the kind of property that you get. So if you're going to buy an investment property, chances are it's not going to be something that you could also alternatively use as a primary residence. Okay, you probably wouldn't want to live there. Unless you're a backpacker and you're just coming into Japan with a lot of cash and you want to splash it around. Yeah, but, but, we're, but we're talking about financing, right? So the fact that you can finance means you, uh, you're, you're working here, right? You're resident here and you've been, you're employed here and you're, you know, you like if if you are eligible for finance finance to begin with. So if you're deciding should I get a home loan or an investment loan, then you probably live here and work here. Otherwise, you wouldn't be talking about these loan opportunities. Um, so the, the the kind of property you're allowed is different. And then the next and what you can buy through financing an investment property will be a lot more money, more cash required and less funding available with higher interest rate, okay? So all right off the bat, you're looking at two different scale of properties, right? One's 50 million, one might be 40 million with 100 million yen down. That's right, with, with 10 million yen deposit. The other thing to consider is, this is an important one. If you buy an investment property first, let, let's say you buy a 20 million yen investment property. So you have a 20 million yen loan. Right, and you've paid whatever necessary cash, but your actual outstanding loan is 20 million. When you want to buy your primary residence, right, and again, you say your income, your bank, the bank says, we'll give you 50 million. Hold on, you already have a 20 million yen investment loan. So we're only going to give you 30 million. Generally, we'll give you 50, but you've already got an outstanding 20 million yen loan. So your buying capacity is now 30. So now you can only buy property that's 30 million. So by buying the investment property first, using financing, you've sort of shot yourself in the foot by being able to like and reduce the amount you can leverage this great the the uh, the home loan, which has great terms. Does that sound clear? 
It does, but does that work in the in the vice versa as well? With the like, you buy the home first, and then when you go for the investment property, the amount of money that they loan you for investment is also cut. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. It 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 does work opposite the same way. So let's say you buy the fifty million yen property first, and then you want to buy an investment property. The bank will say, "Well, you've already maxed out your fifty million." You don't have much capacity to borrow extra, um, so yes, it does work. But my my approach, right? And look, it's it's personal preference for everyone. My take is I'd rather get the fifty million yen loan with which is hundred like no cash money out of pocket or very little cash down at zero point seven percent interest rate, and miss out on the twenty or thirty million yen loan at two and a half percent interest rate with only eighty percent financing. I'd rather miss out on that investment loan and get maximize this great home loan than the opposite. I don't want to miss out on a great home loan opportunity by having a an investment loan which is not very attractive terms, relatively speaking. So, but that's all all personal preference. Um, yeah. So, yes, you're right, um, and that's my take on it. All right, so we've now mentioned all current members of our JREP panel, Tracy Northcott, Matt Ketchum, Emil Gorgis, and yours truly. And around September last year, we realized that really the best part of our Clubhouse weekly sessions and the part that the audience seems to enjoy the most were the conversations that we were having between the four of us. So this then led us to officially form the Japan Real Estate Experts panel, which is what JREP stands for. Uh, we switched from Clubhouse to a weekly or semi-weekly Zoom session, just the four of us, talking shop, unscripted, on various topics related to our individual fields of expertise, with occasional guests uh, jumping in. And this one, uh, this following segment, which was also one of our most downloaded episodes, is from our very first ever JREP session. So really an introduction to who we are, what we do, and how we can help listeners and our clients as well, of course. Yeah, if, when you're actually doing your search, if you when you get familiar with what you want, um, it's probably better to pay a bit of a premium, jump in quickly and get the one you want because this is where you're going to live for the next two decades. This is where you're going to raise your family um, in terms of my clientele in general. Um, and I, I actually find, to be honest, people that are, when they start the, the search process for their own personal home, they start to realize that everyone wants to come on early with the mindset that they want to get a good deal, but they realize if they're searching the good deal, they may miss out on the right property. Yeah. I, I, I've said recently, like I, I found a one yen property, a one yen house, right? Of course the land, the land was for rental. The land was rental. The house was one yen and you had to have a 50 year lease. Um, but it's like, I will totally hunt for good deals on like apples or I don't know, a bicycle or something. Right. But like you just said, this is a house that you're going to be living, presumably, you know, raising a family and a bunch of sort of important stuff. Like if your main concern is getting a deal on that, I don't know. Like I feel a little bit like maybe your, your priorities are a little bit misaligned. I mean, and, to be fair, don't forget that, like we keep saying on the um, on the public meetings, like the criteria that you're looking for when you're buying a home to live in, and the criteria that you're looking for an investment property, and then again the criteria you're looking on for short-term state properties, they're completely di 
different, right? right? Like the, like we always tell our customers that, you know, the, the properties that you're going to be buying, if you want to make good cash flow, are going to be strictly investment properties. And just in the sense that the person who's living in them will never be able to afford to buy them. And the person who can afford to buy them will never want to live in them, right? Like they're completely different kettles of fish. You can't even, you can't even look at them from the same criteria and they're priced differently. The, the price that they'll command when you try to resell them will be based on completely different fundamentals. So there are good deals to be had in a sense, if you're looking for investment properties, but we also have our, um, bottom of the barrel kind of thing like it's like you know the, the listing agents put on the um websites and um i know I, I feel safe saying this next to you emil because you don't deal in investment properties usually but some of the listing agents that um that list out investment properties they, you know, 15 percent, 25 percent, 23 percent, and it's generating this yeah at the moment and one month later when your tenant moves out field, yeah. stand empty for field. a decade it's not going to be generating anything right it's just it's ridiculous it, it looks like a good deal on paper but it's not it's not in reality right so now for your all-time favorite and the most downloaded episode uh, downloaded or streamed episode uh, this year this is again a JREP session, and this time it also included Mika Giman, a Tokyo broker, property manager, and sharehouse operator from a company by the name of Add Value in Tokyo. Mika joined us on the panel to speak to us about the difficulties or challenges that her and many of our own clients face whenever trying to purchase or rent a property here in Japan as a non-Japanese. So really insightful conversation. Here are some parts of it. Yes. Otherwise, Interesting. Um, I mean, look, overseas, it's it's a typical strategy to submit five, six, seven different offers on seven different properties and then just go ahead with the one that you like the best. Um, but if you do that in Japan, those six other agents are never going to speak with you again. So we just we can't afford to go down that track. And by and large, tangentially, this is one reason why we opt. We choose not to have very many public listings on our site. Um, yep. Just because if we go, just like you were saying, Ziv, if we go and do the due diligence, if we go and actually take proper visual documentation, video, drone footage, actual photographs, you know, if we make it look good, but we don't have even an interested, potentially interested buyer, we're just throwing stuff up onto our site, hoping that somebody is interested in it. That's a yep. whole lot of work with no guarantee at all of any kind of uh, return on exactly. it. So and for, for, those, for those rare cases where people do want a similar services to what Matt's talking about, like they just want to make inquiries and look at potential properties and think about stuff, then we just charge them by the hour. Right, right. Yeah. I need to, I need to change industries. <laughs> <laughs> so I think Mika, well, oh, Mika, do you want to speak to that a little bit? Um, mm, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I'll talk about the rental and the share house. I think the share house is getting a little bit slower because uh, we had mostly foreigners in our share houses. And uh, I think the border is now closed. Yeah. Uh, so people can't really get into Japan from overseas. Plus with so, Corona, they're probably scared to live with other people too, right? Ah. Uh, no? Okay. Maybe uh, not. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, but many Japanese people inquire uh, to share houses these days because of their like 
jobs or like economical situations because share houses tend to be much much cheaper than the normal rental yep for example the normal rental moving fee like initial moving fee is like super expensive in japan because we have lots of fees yeah yeah so yeah we have a lot of japanese clients these days but not a lot like before and we have many vacancies in our share houses and yeah i think the share house is like now it's a difficult time but we understand and the rental i think is coming back slowly yeah we have long-term long-term rentals or short-term rentals yeah long-term long-term rentals yeah usually like two-year lease and i think that was like really really dead until a few months before but i think it's coming back these days and i have sometimes like uh 10 clients 10 or more a month and now i'm talking to many customers and i'm getting busier and i'm happy about it and yeah once we open the border i hope many people are going to come into japan again and yeah we have short-term and long-term rentals more and hopefully share houses too fingers crossed we interrupt this broadcast i always wanted to say this we interrupt this broadcast to tell you about tokyo family stays they're a short-term rentals company in tokyo and they offer a home away from home experience which is just perfect for remote working quarantining or if you just need summer quiet to hide away from the world. So they offer a variety of options for families, for corporate relocations, or simply if you're transitioning between homes in Tokyo. Now the properties are super comfortable, tastefully furnished, fully equipped with all amenities, and they accommodate up to 10 people. So really the only thing you'll need to bring with you is your toothbrush and maybe a change of clothes. They've got fast, unlimited wireless internet, dedicated workspaces, and fully equipped kitchens, and they're just a delight to stay in, a fantastic alternative to Japanese business hotels, which if you've ever stayed in one, you probably know they're tiny, they're noisy, fine for a night or two if you're on your own, but long-term or with a family, you'll probably feel you're in a jail cell very quickly. So if you want to give yourself a sense of space and freedom by renting a real home with comfortable Western beds, including all the necessities like baby bedding, children's toys, high chairs, you definitely want to reach out to Tokyo Family Stays. They've been at it for over a decade. They're a fully licensed minpaku or short-term stay operator. And as a special bonus for our viewers and listeners, they're also throwing in a breakfast basket upon arrival for anyone who books and mentions the Japan Real Estate Podcast or NTI. And not only for guests, if you're a property owner, you've got an investment property that you want to tweak for higher profits or a holiday home that you want rented out when not in use via short-term stays, drop them a line today, see how they can help you maximize your property's income. And again, as a special bonus to our viewers and listeners, they're also offering a free audit of your existing short-term stay listings without any obligation whatsoever. So feel free to reach out to them at tokyofamilystays.com. Well worth your visit. And again, if you're in the market for a family home in or around the Tokyo metropolitan area, Emil's your man. Don't be shy to reach out to him as well at emil.gorgies, G-O-R-G-E-E-S at tokyorealty.jp. Okay, now this next segment, this is part of a conversation that I've had with a super resourceful young lady who's living here in Japan 
quite interested in the real estate property market here and she wanted to pick my brain about what it takes to become a real estate professional in Japan. So what viable business strategies she could pursue, what sort of services she could offer considering her yet limited experience and how she could potentially market herself to potential clients. So interesting little look under the hood of running a real estate services business in the land of the rising sun. Okay, so it's really, I mean, this is a, uh, a little complicated, right? So you really kind of need a team. This would be difficult to do with like one person. Yes, if you're like a solopreneur and you're going to be doing things on your own for a start, um, you might want to start, I guess, with just consulting maybe and maybe only for people mm -hmm. who are actually in Japan. Okay. Um, but I would probably argue that you would be finding it challenging just because you're not Japanese so even if your Japanese mm. is perfect and you can mm. read and compose legal documents and you can talk keigo and you understand every kanji and so forth still about half of the professionals that you'll approach will refuse to work with you just because you're a foreigner mm. so you've kind of experienced this yes even us, like my partner is Japanese and yeah. she's got Japanese staff on her team. Mm. But even us, it took us a few years to kind of perfect our pitch. Like, because as soon as a property agent or a seller hears that the actual end buyer of the property is going to be a foreigner who's not living in Japan, oh. they just tend to freak out, even if it's a Japanese company representing them. So even when it's us, I mean, definitely not me, it can't be me, but even if it's the Japanese side of our company that's been making the initial contact, they still have to know exactly what to say and how to set their mind at ease that they can work with us without fear of foreigners kind of thing, right? So I would mm -hmm. say that you would need at least a Japanese partner or staff who's well-versed in corporate speech, who knows how to talk really really politely on the phone okay because real estate is a real old school industry especially in japan mm. so they're kind of expecting certain mannerisms and stuff that um your average mm. modern kind of even a japanese modern young entrepreneur might not be very um, experienced with okay so it's probably a good idea to partner up with somebody who's got a few years of experience working for a japanese company um, and knows all of the um, honorifics and so forth. Mm. And, um, and I mean, they don't have specifically to be experienced in real estate, but they have to be experienced in how to talk to Japanese business folks. Mm. Yeah, because it seems very, very different. And um, I, I just watch YouTube videos, especially with American um, real estate agents people and in, in investing in real estate in the U.S. Yeah. And uh, definitely the things that they teach you for talking to customers, I don't think they would work very well with Japanese people. They're, um, the tactics, I, I think like you said, I, I feel like there's kind of some um, understood rules and how you should speak the corporate language it's yep. not really like this, like in, in the U.S., it's like sometimes you want to sound like their friend, yeah. for example, in sales. But maybe in Japan, it's like always formal. Is that 
kind of true? In or? vast majority of cases, like in our case, for example, if it's an agent that we've already done a few deals with and he's gone on property tours with a few of our customers and he kind of got used to me, he or she kind of got used to me. Um, so they'll they'll accept me and my casual way of my casual Japanese and uh, my jokes and so forth. So they'd be okay with it. And I could probably, I regularly do take customers with them just on my own without my partner or our staff. But if it's the first initial contact, um, just showing my face in the room is probably going to be a deal breaker. So, oh my gosh, you need to, yeah, you need to, I mean, again, putting aside, there are specific agencies, particularly in Tokyo, Sakaniseko, like places that are mm -hmm. a little bit more internationally inclined. And okay. there are particular agencies there that are used to working with foreigners. Mm -hmm. um, but if you only work with those few companies, then your selection of properties and, and the offerings that you'll be able to bring to your clients are going to be pretty limited. So mm -hmm. I would definitely advise to partner up or hire either on a commission basis or on like a starting salary, hire some staff who can do the talking for you in the beginning at least. Okay. Yeah. So, but, but your clientele, mm -hmm. what you were thinking, you're not going to have Japanese clients, you're going to have foreign clients, right? Yes, I'm, um, I think that would be better for me, and especially at the beginning, because um, obviously I'm much better, English is my native language, yeah. so I would be much better in handling foreign clients than I would with Japanese clients, uh, with my current level of Japanese. Uh, so you're thinking, just to clarify for me, you're thinking about being involved in real estate properties in Japan, or are you thinking about like maybe U.S. properties for Japanese buyers, or what, what was your frame of mind there? So I, I think initially I want to stay within Japan, okay. just because I'm here, and I think that that would be a better start, And but yeah. eventually it could be possible you know, because obviously, yeah, I'm American, so going, I could go back to the U.S. if I needed to for business trips, that could be a, a possibility. But for now, I think it's better just to stick nearby. Yeah. Yeah. So you're talking about Japanese properties and potentially helping foreigners be active in Japan's real estate market, right? Yes. So investing or buying. Um, really, the best thing, I would also like to work with uh, Japanese sellers or foreign sellers, too. Um, so that's, I don't know, I'm kind of all over the place, but... Um, well, to work with Japanese yeah. sellers, you would need to most likely be a real estate agent, a registered, mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's not an easy um, qualification to get in japan even for people who have been mm -hmm. here for a long time and speak very fluent japanese it's it's a tough one um, but if you're working with the agents then the agents are satisfying the requirement for a realtor and okay. then you can do something like what we do you can be the buyer's side um, representative kind of thing but um okay. I, I would maybe I mean, look, investment properties is part of what we do. We also do holiday homes and stuff. And uh, just, you know, scouting out land parcels for development and commercial properties and stuff like that. So we do a lot of things that we've sort of, you know, picked up expertise over the years. But mm. 
if you're just starting out, um, I would probably, I mean, it's just me thinking, but to be attractive and feel reliable for your potential clients, um, I would either go the route, like if you want to get into investment properties, I would definitely try to first get a few of your own so that you're talking out of experience and you've got, you know, your own skin in the game. And otherwise, maybe focus more on holiday homes, right? So you can be mm -hmm. like the person on the ground to go and scout out locations and look at uh, houses, send them uh, photos and walk through videos and liaise with them mm -hmm. as you're visiting the property, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, so for that, you might not need as much as expertise as you would for investment. And, you know, you could buy into I, I don't know are you the diy type like are you somebody who would be interested in doing like renovations repairs that sort of things on old old homes and stuff like that i would be interested but it also seems a little bit overwhelming um i'm not really sure i diy isn't um if it was myself um i don't know that i have really the skills to do that no, I, I wasn't thinking doing that for customers. But oh, like thinking, hiring, hiring people. Well, yeah, I mean, if you, if you, for example, you know, in the countryside in Japan, you can potentially get like really rundown old houses for pretty mm -hmm. cheap. So that would maybe be a cheap way for you to get some just experience under your own belt mm -hmm. to buy one of these and then sort of be involved in the renovation, either yourself or with a local company or whatever. Okay. Um, I'm just thinking that might be a cheaper way to get into it uh, compared with actually, you know, going ahead and buying two or three or four investment properties because that's going to be, I don't know, 60, 70, 80,000 bucks. Um, yes. You're going to be trying to approach customers with no experience whatsoever. It's likely <laughs> that they're going to be a bit, you know, reluctant. That's all. Now for our next segment, and this was also your third favorite episode of the last 12 months, Ben Sheeran, who's no newcomer to the Japan Real Estate Podcast, he's been with us before. Uh, he's a personal finance and retirement consultant, one of the few professional authorities on the topic here in Japan. Uh, as far as English resources are concerned, he's probably the only one. And he's founder, admin, and owner of the Retire Japan online web portal, Facebook group, and forum. Um, which is a phenomenal community for anyone interested in these topics and living here in Japan. And we speak with him as well as with uh, Haley Agra, who's another phenomenal young lady specializing in financial education and social media marketing. And we talk about all things related to, to savings, retirement, managing your own personal finances. Here are some highlights of that conversation. What a, well, I'm going to ask you about these products in a second, Ben, but maybe I, I want to sort of segue into that for a second. Why do you think it is so difficult for people to actually take that first step and get into the routine of actually not even investing, just saving for retirement? Like, because a lot of people are, are like Haley's work and like, yeah, but not this month or oh, this year, there's all this happening. So I'll, I'll think about it. But why is it so difficult to take that first step? It's in the future. People yeah. It's like right there. <laughs> It's very complex, I think. Um, it's it's your psychology, it's your background, uh, it's your sense of values, it's your experience, all mixed together. So I tend to find that 
most people kind of reach a trigger point at some point. They kind of wake up and they're like, oh, it's time. Right? You know, I, I've had a child, you know, I'm, I'm 40. Uh, something happened. I lost my job. That was my trigger point. Um, I have never, I've never been great with money. But we, were talking about that before, point, uh, we were talking about it before you logged in. My trigger point was just suddenly realizing yeah. that I've accumulated 50,000 bucks in debt, right? Off of credit cards. Yeah. Ah. So it, it's a pain point, right? That, that, that yeah, and, and, and it's kind of pointless to try and talk to people before they hit the trigger point. Right. Because they're not ready to listen to you. Uh, it's yeah. it's not real to them yet. Education might have a lot to do with it too, right? Like I know that, for example, and this was something that was never um, never done for me as a child, right? Like I basically asked for money when I needed it and I got it and, you know, I might right. have spent it on stupid things. I might have st- spent it on wiser things, but there was never any budgeting or saving uh, factor involved in my, in my um, rearing. And I see now with my son, like we put him on an allowance, He's now 12. He's been on it for like five or six years already. And obviously at first he spent it on stupid things, right? Like you got money in your pocket and you go and you buy silly things. But as his reserves constantly ran out and he recognized that now he wants to buy this like slightly bigger thing, but there's no money to get it. And we refuse, staunchly refuse to like give him credit, right? Like a deducted from my next allowance is not going to happen, right? (laughs) And, and he's learning. He's actually learning. Like he's actually awesome. And sometimes it's in a, you know, kind of manipulative way. Like, oh, dad, can you buy that? Because I don't want to use my money for that. But <laughs> there is a lot of learning yeah. involved. I think education is a huge factor, isn't it? The home environment, definitely. Um, also in schools. Um, I've been teaching personal finance to university students for the last four or five years. Um, and they're very receptive to that. And from next year, um, Japanese high school students are going to learn personal finance uh, at school. Wow. Um, pretty exciting. I'm a bit worried about the quality of teachers, yeah. um, but I think it's a great big step towards having a more financially literate population. Definitely better than nothing, right? Even if the teachers are not spec. Absolutely. Um, although, yeah, you've got to be careful. Like a lot of the stuff in the UK, it's stuff like, um, hey, let's pick stocks. And whoever's stock went up the most in the next eight weeks is the winner, which is not <laughs> right approach to learning about investing. Long-term thinking there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, so we're almost done for this next episode. We're back with Haley Agra again. She's asked me if I could help mentor her about the Japanese real estate property market, which she wants to become more active in. So we had a good few chats that were also published on the podcast. This particular one, which you really liked, is all about the concept of a uh, forever home. Is there such a thing? And if there is, what exactly does it mean to different people? And how does one go about securing it? Mm. For our next purchase, we wanted a condominium, but with a large enough balcony or um, private yard that would make it feel like a house, even though we wouldn't have the structural maintenance cost. So we were a bit more specific on the next purchase, right? Okay. Yeah. So, but but I guess the point I'm making is for us specifically, it's never forever because we know that in five years time, we might want to get something completely different. Yeah. And also it changes as you, I mean, like you, right? You're thinking about your forever home right now. 
Um, but what are you planning for a family of three, five, or six? Do you know if you want to, if you might want to get a dog when the kids become five years old, they might want to have a dog and then you need the backyard. Like, how would you know where your life right. is going to be in like 10 years' time? Forever changing. <laughs> yeah. So, forever yeah. changing home, right? Forever changing home. Yes. <laughs> I, okay. Maybe it's like our first home. I think I call it the forever home. So, I put it in Chris's mind that he has to con convince one of my real estate agent friends in Kotemba that he's like, he's not buying this for investment yeah. necessarily, kind of. <laughs> he's yeah. buying it in the hopes that we have it for a while. Yeah. Um, and also, okay. don't, don't forget that in Japan, especially if you're talking about houses, like wooden structures, right? Yeah. Um, after 25, 30 years, I don't know how much forever there's going to be left in the house, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be old and rotten. Yeah. Wood. Are with newer structures, are they still using wood? Um, like, yes, uh, unless it's a really yeah, unless it's a custom order for a stone or concrete house. Um, yeah. they're usually like the the kind of cookie factory housing company um built houses in particular neighborhoods are always wood, yeah. Okay. Hmm. Uh, that's good to know. So age 20, less than 20 or 25 years old. Be Ideally, easier, like easier on the maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we want it like pretty close to Fuji Speedway. He likes to race his motorcycle and his cars. He doesn't have a car yet. Yeah. Um, uh, so have you or your company ever helped someone that is Japanese residency find a home or that's not because you guys gear towards foreigners? We gear towards foreigners, but we do have a lot of customers who are foreigners that live in Japan. And yeah. we definitely help them buy investment properties and we occasionally help them buy holiday homes as well. Yeah. With um with family homes, like if it's going to be a house that they're going to be living in, they're usually going to be, and rightfully so, they're going to be a lot more picky. Yeah. So if somebody wants like a ski apartment up in Nagano, then yeah, I mean, we're happy to share with them, you know, all the listings that we get from our realtor partners or stuff that we've researched online and help them, you know, narrow it down to a one single visit so we can yeah. take them over for the weekend and look at five or six properties. Mm -hmm. But if they're shopping for a family home, that's going to be a bit more of a process and there's going to be a lot more in-person viewings and visits that they're going to do. So in those cases, we'd usually refer them to a local realtor that we've worked with and they can work with them directly. Okay, so this is it. Our very last segment. This one's a portion of a super in-depth conversation with a new potential client who lives here in Japan. And we talked about everything related to property investment in Japan. And I do mean everything, due diligence, tenant profiles, locations, insurance management, you name it. Obviously, again, too much to put into this uh, highlights reel, but a really good, diverse conversation. Highly recommend you go to the show notes and check it out if you haven't listened to it yet. Yeah, I've seen a couple of properties. Uh, I mean, I think the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the Tokyo real estate is that, obviously, because I want fairly central and my budget is limited to 30 million. Yeah. It's properties that are 1960s, early 70s. Uh, they're all nice inside, you know, um, new. 
but there's always, you know, something, you know, to be in that bracket, you know, even they're a bit old and people have been warning me off because of the earthquake. Yeah, 60s, 60s, it's not just the earthquake standard. 60s, 70s means that um, sooner rather than later, a developer is just going to swoop in and try to buy it uh, and redevelop it under the owners. Uh, yeah. So you might Actually, not be holding could... it for that long, I think, if it's that old. Well, one, one property I saw, that well, that was the selling point that they were pushing down and say, well, look, you could live in it for a couple of years. And they showed me the plans for rebuilding um, the, the, the apartment. Um, yeah. Sending Aya, which is, you know, great location. Um, uh, but I think they said that uh, it was like six or seven or maybe 10 years off. Was the was the was the plan, and they still hadn't agreed amongst the uh, the the owners of the apartment. But then you'd be getting a new a new property when they build the new one, right? Yeah, and they said that basically the land in which the property's on is a little bit bigger, so actually they, they were going to add two apartments to it. So there was a potential that you'd you know make money on it. But you know that was one of the first I saw, and I thought, well. And the other problem was it didn't have a management company running the building. It was just, oh, self-managed, is it? Yeah, it was just the Oji San in the in the building. Doing yeah, like, that can be a bit of a headache. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was. People were just like, mm. you want you want professionals who know what they're doing to actually take care yeah. of renovations and repairs, and they also can help owners reach decisions a lot quicker. If it's self-managed, there's always a lot of bickering and arguing. Yeah. Yes, that was one another that, and then there was an, another one I saw was again really central location, and the buildings looked good, and obviously they've been cared for, but there was no reserve fund. You know, they said they done any big renovations in the last ten years. I think they had, but they just said, "Oh, there, there's no, there's no reserve fund," and I was like, "Oh, okay." So, but but, but that, that's not necessarily a red flag. So what we normally like to see is. Um, if the reserve fund is depleted, we want to make sure that in the last 10 years, the big ticket items were done. So the exterior, the roof, um, maybe the elevators, if you're lucky. And if that's been done in the last 10 years, then it does make sense that the reserve fund is depleted, but there's not going to be any huge expenses um, in the immediate range of time post-purchase. Um, no if one it's depleted was, and nothing was done in the last 10 years, that's a bit of a red flag. Yeah, I think the... the, the there was no reserve fund because no one was paying any any money for it. Okay, so they weren't collecting very well, were they? No, they weren't collecting at all. Okay. It just wasn't part of the... I think they said that... Um, what was it? Uh, that I said, oh, so if there's any repairs need doing, oh, they just... Charge a one-off, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, so I could get hit. I mean, there was no elevator in the building. It was only like four floors, five floors, so that that... And it looked, you know, looked like they they kept it well, um, but I was like, oh, you know, these are all, you know, and I'm quite happy to go through the process and just learn. Okay, no, no, oh yeah, okay, I can see that, and um, you know, if it takes me a few months or whatever, I'm fine. But in the process, yeah. I'll learn about the market and I'll I'll understand, you know, when I see the right property, it'd be like, yeah, boom, okay, I know what's out there, I know the prices, I know what's there. Well, you that's seem to be ticking all the right boxes in your due diligence, so that that's a good sign. You're learning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. I don't want to, you know, I, I, like uh, it was my uh, my my granddad's money. My you know, my granddad worked for like uh, you know seventy years of his life, a builder, and that saved all his money. And I think oh, I couldn't just spend it that easy. I've got to I've got to invest it in something. Uh, 
that uh, you know is, is has adds value to my life and you know old school was he just save under the mattress kind of my dad oh yeah well, that was day, yeah <laughs> but I think in the days you used to get like because he, he I remember used to speaking to him sort of the last few years of his life and he was moaning about the interest rates going down and before when he was saving it was five six seven percent so he, you know he was happy with that and then, it was a bit, a bit easier to save when uh, the cost of living was a little bit lower in the past decades right it's not as easy before. yeah yeah mm. yeah so i think he you know okay well so, so for your tokyo tokyo home um obviously that's something that you want to be um you know visiting a lot of properties in person and, and uh, looking at the exterior and the interior because that's where you're going to be living so for that purpose i think the best thing for me to do would be to put you in touch maybe with a couple more real estate companies in tokyo that are um, yes. quite, quite foreigner friendly and they got english speakers on staff and they can help so similar to the one you've been working with yeah so when we're done i'll send uh, a couple of introductory emails to put you in touch with tokyo agents and um, with the investment property, so what's, assuming that you're purchasing the Tokyo property in cash, what sort of budget would you have left over for investment? Uh, well, I'm, I'm seeing one today, and it's like 24 million, um, I think it's 1982. So I was trying to push the real estate uh, agent on, you know, whether it was sort of the, the side of the, you know, whether it had the new earthquake standards. Um, 82 would have the new, uh, if, if building was, if the building plan was, um, was approved by June, 1981, uh, that would be up to the latest earthquake. Oh, you might be borderline there, depending on how long it took them to build it. Yeah. I think it's just suspiciously low price for, it's like Meguro Shibuya border. Yeah. So Shinsen, which is like quite a, quite a um, dead area. That, that might not only be because of the earthquake resistance standard, it might also be because they've been um, umming and ahhing about a new legislation that's supposedly going to, uh, it was originally supposed to come in next year, but now they're sort of saying that they're thinking about when it's going to come in, but sooner or later it will happen. And what that's going to do is, um, it's going to put more of an onus on uh, owner unions to better maintain the buildings via some uh, uh, government uh, standards that they're going to uh, detail and lay out. Uh, and then what's going to happen, that, that's going to apply for buildings that are 40 years and older. And what's probably we're assuming is going to happen, there's going to be a compliance system and a certificate for buildings that either um, live up to the standard or don't. So what it's going to do is um, either the owner unions will be scrambling to catch up on the stuff that they haven't done, you know, too properly so far, which means that they'll have right. to jack up building fees to, to cover for that. Um, or they might choose not to comply, not to get the certificate, in which case there's suddenly going to be a market of certified and non-certified properties and the price will probably reflect that. So what we've been seeing in the last couple of years is um, properties that are getting to the 35, 36, 37 uh, age mark are suddenly being discounted uh, quite significantly. Uh. So we've, for investment at least, we've been advising to our customers until that legislation becomes a bit clearer, we've been advising them to maybe stick to properties that are 30 years and older. So what's the date on that, like 1990s? Uh, yeah, 1991 or two at the moment, but that's for investment purposes. I mean, if you're talking about owner-occupied properties, you're paying a certain, you know, monthly amount for building fees. So as long as you are comfortable with it, potentially, I don't know, like worst case being doubled, let's say, 
as long as you're comfortable paying whatever that's going to be end up uh, that's going to end up being if it's doubled it shouldn't make such a huge difference i mean 82 for an owner occupier is not necessarily a horrible scenario to be in for investment property if building fees are doubled it, it can pretty much reduce your yield by two or three percent and that's that's a lot less uh, attractive of a proposition and it will also reduce this resale price but for owner occupied properties not necessarily such a huge deal right okay so the new law basically sort of forced um older buildings to comply to that like what you said which means they have to uh put in new a new standard yes uh, it's, it's not a, it's not exactly a law like they're not going to force them to do it but they will need to do it if they want to be certified as a as a well-managed compliant building kind of thing all right, okay. Like a new certificate system, they're not going to force them to get it, but if they don't get it, that's obviously going to affect the price, I, I would assume. So the, so the well-managed is what, in what sense, related to safety and things like that of the, the, the building? Regular, first of all, they want to see regular um, owner union meetings because a lot of them haven't uh, been doing that. They might have appointed somebody who's died and they've never replaced him, that sort of thing. And what results from that is that there's not really building inspections being conducted on a regular basis. Some of them become an eyesore. Some of them are just outright dangerous because they're not being maintained. Right. And so whatever the standard, whatever the standard is that they're going to be putting out, I'm guessing it's going to be a bit more strict than what most, I wouldn't say, I shouldn't say most, but a lot of the owner unions have been doing so far. Um, some of them, like if you look at the renovation history and the inspection, uh, you know, the periodic inspections and the uh, renovation plans, if there's a clear renovation plan in place for the next, say, five years, and there's a clear renovation history for the last five or 10 years, then that building is probably already being well managed. Um, but some of them just don't have that, right? Some of them are saying, oh, we don't have any immediate plans for renovation. And then you look at the past and you see that they haven't done the exterior for the last 10 or 15 years. And then you well hang on why don't you have a renovation plan in place because obviously every 15 years at most some some of those the roof the exterior some of these items need to be done the elevators need to be done every 20 25 years if there is an elevator um so either the last 10 years or the next projected five years there should be something that says there's going to be a big renovation happening or has happened and if that's not clearly um, defined in documents from the owner union, then that that is probably what the government wants to address. So these types of buildings that are not doing it um, properly or regularly enough. And that's it. Those were your favorite Japan real estate podcast and YouTube channel episodes these past 12 or 13 months. And I'd like to take a moment to thank you, our viewers and listeners, for supporting us these past few years. The podcast has been steadily growing since we started back in 2017. We're now at about 20,000 full downloads or streams of the episodes um, annually, plus thousands more uh, annual viewings on YouTube. And that really speaks to the value that you're finding in it. And, and really, this is exactly why it was created. Uh, to summarize, like some of our recent reviewers just wrote on the uh, iTunes store recently, um, the podcast does what it says on the tin in a market that badly needs its presence. Helpful, informative, easy to follow. First stop for anyone interested in real estate in Japan. So, yes, we're really grateful for your attention. And as you probably know well by now, if you're a regular listener or viewer, we're always here to talk shop. So please don't be shy. Feel free to send us your questions, ideas for future episodes, 
comments, criticisms. We promise to discuss them either with you in a future discussion with none of our experts or just by me pontificating on it, if you prefer. This is, again, why we are here. Now, before we go, we're also, as always, going to tell you and also link to our other sponsor's website. That's Hiroshi Shimizu, immigration lawyer and administrative scrivener. If you're thinking about moving here on a more permanent basis or you're already in Japan on some sort of a temporary visa and you want to switch to a longer term or permanent one, or if you're considering setting up a local company or a branch office of a foreign company and you've got any sort of business or visa-related inquiries, or even if you just want to find out what your options are on any of these topics, feel free to contact Hiroshi Shimizu. You can find him at japanimmigrationexperts.com. And he can help you set up a company, apply for any kind of visa, or just provide you with the best advice and extremely affordable consultation related to these topics. And he's already done that for many of our listeners. So feel free to reach out to him. Again, that's japanimmigrationexperts.com and you'll be well on your way. And that's it from us for today, folks. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Japan Real Estate Podcast. Do share it with your networks and please let us know what you think. So leave us a short rating or review on the iTunes store, on Spotify, or just drop us a line in the comment section of wherever you might have found this episode. We love hearing from you. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, have a great day or night ahead. Yoroshiku. Bye.